Have you ever had those chance moments, those chance encounters in a day that turn out to be the highlight of your day? Those little conversations that you weren't expecting that become memorable. Uh, earlier this week, I was walking towards the restroom. Uh, ESL class was happening here. It was uh, a Tuesday morning. I went into the restroom and there was this tiny little girl. She couldn't have been any older than three years old, uh, from an Asian background. And she was just so, so cute and so little. And on her back, she was wearing uh, a backpack that had uh, the character of Frozen on it, Elsa. And so I tried to start a conversation. Oh, I love your backpack. I love Elsa. Do you like Frozen? And she nodded, but she was very busy, very busy with her work, uh, waiting for her mum to come out of, of the cubicle. And I continued to talk about, I love, I love Frozen, I love Elsa too. And then she stopped, and she looked up at me with her big eyes, and she said, You are Anna. And she said it again, you are Anna. <laughs> and you know what? I began to believe it. <laughs> because aren't there days when you begin to think and ponder your alternative identity? <laughs> of life in Arendelle, which is so much better than the work of the plebeians here, the plebs, <laughs> paying taxes, cooking dinner. It's so much easier to be in Arendelle. And there was just something about that chance encounter with this little girl that, that kept me going for the rest of the day, that I could be an Anna, maybe, or maybe not. <laughs> but that moment felt important to me uh, this week because it reminded me of the possibility of, of other worlds entirely other worlds, because in our world it's so easy to get trapped and, and locked, isn't it, into the systems. Whether it's political systems, whereas we see leadership contests being played out, we, we ask the question, are we locked and trapped? Or is there possibility for change and transformation? Or whether it's the reality of this coronavirus, which is so adeptly traveling all our systems, our hyper-globalized systems, traveling so easily, it's not respecting borders, it's not respecting entry points, it simply hops on suitcases and traverses cultures. And I think it's so interesting that the coronavirus, that name corona, um, when you pare it down to the Latin, it means crown. And I'm not sure why this virus, maybe some of the scientists here can tell me why it's called that, but I think it is interesting that it is called the crown virus. It's, it's challenging our notion of who's king, isn't it? Who's king of our own destiny? For all, for all our centuries of, of discovery, whether, whether by land or, or by science, this small 
virus is reminding us we are not kings of our destiny and not much changes, not much changes. We're locked in, in cycles and systems that are hard to change. Well, the Hellenistic worldview had a similar idea of being locked in. Even though there were cycles and there were rhythms uh, to the year, it seemed to be this closed system of logic, logos logic. And whenever I think of, of something logical, I think of mathematics. Two plus two equals four. It doesn't matter if you write that on a piece of paper, it doesn't matter if you write it or type it into your calculator. Two plus two will always equal four. It's an unchangeable equation. It's locked in to a logical system. And so for the Hellenists, even when bad things happened, even when tragedy happened, there was a certain understanding that still ascribed it all to this inscrutable logic. Well, they had a fatalistic approach. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change these things. And that's where the Greek word apatheia comes from, this, this apathy. So imagine Jesus coming into this context and encountering Nicodemus in the middle of the night and saying something so radical that things can change. You can be born again. This logos, this living word, this living water is offering you something that will transform you. A total transformation. This, this just isn't a spring clean. It's not just retuning up all the parts in your life that are tired and weary. This is total transformation, a, a rebirth, not from below, but from above. Something so other coming into life. And I wonder if Nicodemus was beginning to sense that in Jesus was this transformative power. Because he had seen that first sign of water into wine, transformation, where six stone jars had water for cleansing, and Jesus was just to, able to do something so entirely transformative with them and change them into wine for a party. And then in the next moment, there's another transformation where Jesus goes into the temple and clears it out and says, I have the ability to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And Nicodemus was possibly trying to understand something logically about this Jesus. He tries through reason to get at who this Jesus is, who can transform water into wine, who can raise a temple in three days again. And you can see him almost rehearsing his legal knowledge. First of all, he has this hypothesis. You are a rabbi who's sent from God. That's the hypothesis. But he says there's evidence, and he analyzes the evidence that backs up the hypothesis. 
You're a rabbi sent from God, and we believe this because no one can do these signs who's from the earth. That's the evidence. And here's the verdict. He says, you must be from God. If there's evidence, then a decision must be made. And so Nicodemus, in his logic, is going through all the legal options. Jesus, you're doing X amount of signs, so that must mean Y, you are from God. But the answer that Jesus gives back to Nicodemus doesn't play by these logical conversational rules. Instead, Jesus gets straight to the point of why he has come to earth. He he says, you must be born again, Nicodemus. That's why I came. I, I was born to give you this second birth. That's why I'm here. And, and so Jesus confronts the logic with this metaphor, this metaphor of new birth. Now, before we get into how Nicodemus responds and reacts to this, I think, isn't it so interesting that this is the metaphor Jesus uses with Nicodemus? Birth. That's something so outside of Nicodemus' experience. It's not part of his male anatomy to give birth. It's something so other. Uh, And there's an othering going on here, not just is it about birth, but it's birth from above. It's something so completely different. And this isn't to, to alienate Nicodemus in any way, but it's simply to say, Nicodemus, you're never going to reach this new birth through your own system, through your own terms of reference. Logic is not going to get you to new birth. Because there's something about new birth that's this invitation to mystery, isn't it? Now, whenever a couple decide they want to have a child, I don't believe anyone has ever sat down with their partner and say, now, we want our child to have your eyes and your hair, but let's have my intellect. (laughs) Let's go to the other side for athletic ability, but we'll stick with your musical ability. You can't logically come up with the chromosomal blueprint, can you, for, for having a baby? There's so much in, in giving birth that's a mystery. You don't know how this baby will turn out. You might have an idea, but it's such a, a mystery. All those chromosomal blueprints can't be put into planning a baby. It'd be fun to try in a congregation like this. We'll take this part of this person and this part of another, but you can't do it. It's a mystery. The story goes that uh, George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright uh, from Ireland, he was brilliant at his his trade, but he wasn't good-looking. And this, this beautiful, beautiful, stunning actress who didn't have much between her ears, came up to him and said, Oh, Mr. Shaw, Mr. Shaw, we should have a child together. 
what with my good looks and your great talent, we would create a, a prodigy. And Mr. Shaw said, ah, but what if this child has my looks and your talent? <laughs> then we'd be in trouble. The beauty of birth is that every single child is so unique, so distinctive. You, you might see the mother's eyes, you might see the father's smile, but every single time, each baby is different. Every single time. And not even the best artists in this world, not even the Michelangelo's or the, the Da Vinci's can do anything close to the miracle uh, of new birth. And so it's quite something when Jesus says to Nicodemus, I can do this for you. I can give you something wonderful that you can't create for yourself. Jesus is stirring up Nicodemus, stirring his senses to dream again of what is possible. Did you notice how many senses Nicodemus has to use in, in this encounter? Jesus says, do you want to see the kingdom, Nicodemus, then be born again? Do you want to hear the kingdom like the wind, where you stand and you feel the wind coming at you and you hear it rustling in, in the trees? Well, to do that, you have to be born again. That's what it's like to be born again. And I wonder at this point, was Nicodemus beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable? This, this, is, this is major reconstruction. This is not a tweak in my identity. This is major work going on here. And I wonder if it's his discomfort that makes him respond in the way that, that he does. It's easy to say, well, Nicodemus, are you being obtuse when you say, surely someone can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Everyone knows that's not possible. So why did he ask it? Or I wonder if he was worried. I wonder if he realized just how much this transformation was going to cost him that it was going to cost absolutely everything that he had. And he was scared. He says, you say born again? Well, let me take this metaphor further. How can a grown man crawl back into a mother's womb? And instead of Nicodemus asking a ridiculous question, he's trying to push it all back on Jesus and say, really? It's ridiculous, Lord, this metaphor. If I push it back on you, surely it's going to all fall apart. But I think what's going on here is Nicodemus is beginning to realize it just might fall apart for him. Are you really asking me to give up all my learning in this temple that you say you're going to destroy? All those years of training? all those years of sitting with the Torah, are you saying this is meaningless in order for me to grasp this invitation? It's like the farmer who's out in the field and he sees that one pearl of great 
price and he sells everything that he has in order to get it. That's where Nicodemus is at. He's at this crossroads. Has he found enough in Jesus that will enable him to sell all that he has in order to obtain new life? And that's the question. Is it in Jesus? Is this new life in Jesus, is it enough? Is Jesus able to unite heaven to earth again? And that's the question that goes all the way through John. Who is this Jesus? Is he able to unite heaven to earth? To unite together all the others who sit outside the temple, who don't fit this neat temple Torah of liturgies. I wonder when Nicodemus was in the temple performing his religious duties, did he sing Psalm 87? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. As I was reading Psalm 87 this week, I noticed some interesting verses there that we don't sing as part of that hymn. It talks about Zion having this gathering of worshipers and they're all worshiping God. But it lists who the worshipers are, the people who have been born again. Listen to who it lists. Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia. These are the enemies of Israel. And yet the psalmist is marveling that through being born again, through new birth, these foreigners, these enemies who look different, who talk different, who don't have the right kind of profile, they're the ones now streaming into the city. And there is the mystery in this psalm. How can it be that the others get in? In the same way that Nicodemus has been thrown this curveball with this othering metaphor of new birth, so outside his experience, so in the Psalms, all those who are the others are being invited in to participate, to worship. And so you see gently and over and over again, all throughout our Bible, the picture is being built up of what it's going to take for all the others to experience new birth. And in the same way, Nicodemus on that day was wondering, do I have to give up everything to be part of this deal? Jesus was showing him he was the one who was going to give everything. He was the one going to have to give up his self in order to bring in this new life. And he did it by coming down. He did it by being born, by humiliation. Oh, oh yes, birth is one of these wonderful miracles. There's nothing like it, but it's also painful. It's humiliating. It's degrading. And Jesus entered the world that way to experience the weight of the curse of Eden, of how painful childbirth was, because he loved us. That's why babies come into the world through love, 
And then at the end of his life, he was lifted up to die another degrading death, the death of a criminal on on the cross, so that the curse would be lifted totally. Because he loved us. And he wants us to have that new birth, to be his children. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes has everlasting life. Everyone, all the others, those who don't fit in the fixed systems of the world, those who struggle to keep up appearances, those who feel rejected because they're not judged good enough to make the grade or make the system, those are the ones God says, you can be my beloved child all through this new birth, born to give them second birth. That's why he came, to help us realize Jesus was born to give us second birth. And so as you leave this place, what is it like to live in the heart of that identity? That you are this child, this child of God. You are part of this divine communion. When that little girl earlier this week told me, you are Anna, that did something to me. It made me feel childlike and free again. And it made me think about what it would mean if we live from our primary identity, that this world is not our home. We are a child of God. And it means living like that. It means living as people who are free. Isn't that what Abram and Sarah did? Even though they thought this was impossible that they were going to be the father of nations, they were childless. This was impossible. And yet they fixed their identity, trusting in God that he was going to be enough for them and make what's impossible possible. We are called to live from that identity as free people. I was watching the movie Hook uh, a few nights ago, the story of how Peter Pan grows up, becomes an accountant, um, and he has to relearn and remind himself how to become Peter Pan in order to take on Captain Hook. And Wendy, who's now really old in her final years, she looks at Peter in his eyes and says, Peter, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who you are? And I wonder, have we forgotten who we are? We get so stuck. Have we forgotten that God loved us so much he put him whole self on the line in order to remake us? We have to live under that magnificent love And know that we are free. And that's the mark of new birth. Listen to what Jürgen Moltmann says about the quality of new life. He says, the one who is born again cannot be scrupulously and anxiously preoccupied with himself. His life is always oriented towards the new creation. 
what would it look like not to be scrupulously, anxiously hung up on ourselves, but to be free? That second birth boldness. When I was little, uh, my parents would tell me that what I used to do was climb a tree or climb something tall. I loved climbing. And when I reached the high place, I would simply shout out, Daddy, catch me. <laughs> and I would jump. Whether Dad was ready or not, I was off the building or off the tree. But I had no fear because I knew Dad would always do his best to catch me. But that's trusting in someone bigger than yourself. And as you leave this place today, I want you to have that second birth boldness where you're always saying, Daddy, catch me. I'm trusting in you that I won't fall. To have the kind of boldness Abraham had when in Genesis 12, God said to him, go, leave your country, leave everything you're familiar with and go to the new land. Abram was trusting that his dad would catch him and hold him. It's the kind of boldness Nicodemus had later in life. We don't know much about the rest of Nicodemus until right at the end when Jesus has died and all the disciples have deserted him. Nicodemus is there, pouring his life savings by putting burial spices on Jesus' body. That's boldness. That's coming out of the darkness into the light. Second birth boldness, the kind of boldness that says, there's a lot in this world today that I know I can't change. But as a child of the king, this world is not my frame of reference. Jesus is. This world's time is not my frame of reference. I'm part of eternity. And I trust in the everlasting God to hold me and not let me fall. That's why he came, born to give us second birth. But it's a second birth boldness. So live like that. Live in the freedom. And you'll understand the free love that comes to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.